regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to um, another episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Matthew Makatia. Matthew is a machine learning researcher at Pro.ai. Prior to this, he got his career started in biological aging before moving on to the missions of figuring out ways in which machine learning could be used on large amounts of noisy biomedical data. He has worked many companies as a machine learning engineer and researcher, ranging from small startups to the TensorFlow team at Google. His work on subjects like security and safety in machine learning has also been showcased at top um, academic conferences uh, like SEML. So yeah, Matthew, uh, glad to have you on the show. Great to be here. So yeah, uh, I want to start out talking about sort of your early uh, academic interest. So, um, you know, as a high school senior, um, I saw that you did a bunch of uh, internship, including one at the Wisdom Institute for Biology-Inspired Engineering within Harvard. So, um, and in particular, you have created the CDNA node software, a program designed to calculate cell optimizing DNA sequences for constructing nanoscopic shapes designed by the user. Uh, so, you know, just, just curious, what, what was it about biology that got your interest? Yeah, so I'd say I did a lot of interesting internships in high school, especially toward the end. You brought up the, you know, helping out at the Visa Institute. That one was surprisingly uneventful. I think with that one, I was kind of getting into growing pains of learning to do sort of group software engineering products for the first time. Uh, this was also back when GitHub was not quite as fleshed out, but I did get to use um, Cadenano later in an iGEM project proposal. But I think I got interested much, much earlier than high, uh, high school. I think for as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be some kind of scientist, whether it be, you know, archaeologist or astronomer or something else. I mean, maybe when I was three, I think when I was three, I wanted to be Big Bird from Sesame Street. But aside from that, it was almost always wanting to be some kind of scientist. And I think especially when I was around, you know, elementary school age, I was reading these biology textbooks that I'd gotten from yard sales and the library near my house. And I think that's when I really got interested in biology, at least from the perspective of uh, zoology. And when I was in middle school, I started helping out at a local wildlife hospital. Uh, it started out just cleaning the cages of abandoned exotic pets. For example, uh, iguanas that had been left on the side of the road in you know, cold Massachusetts because they got too big for the owner. And when I started helping out with giving public tours there, I think I ended up persuading my supervisors to give me a shot at the veterinary uh, intern exam. I ended up passing, and I actually got to help out in the actual medical wards with you know, animals with much more serious uh, conditions or even, you know, possibly zoonotic diseases. I had to get a lot of, you know, vaccines before I could go in there. Uh, I was only 14 at the time. Uh, but I, getting this great exposure early 
to how these various treatments worked uh, and the under the biological underpinnings of the various treatments uh, and, and diseases, uh, even getting to be, you know, helping out just maintaining this, the sterile field in the surgical suite a few times. Uh, I think getting to see all that really got me interested in molecular biology. And after, especially during high school, between, you know, whether it be internships at, you know, Northeastern working on, working in a biophysics lab to even, you know, the Visa Institute, I think that kind of interest got, got me really excited. I think especially the interest in aging particularly happened around the wildlife hospital uh, time because I saw so many animals that would be uh, in various stages of uh, health. For example, there would be a hawk that was in its prime, but uh, it would most likely be outlived by a tortoise that has a mild respiratory disease. And I think really getting into wondering like why that was the case and even wondering if that could be used for, you know, addressing multiple comorbid aging related diseases like diabetes and heart disease. I think that's what really got me interested in saying, yes, I really want to study this. I'll figure out whatever tools I need to, in order to learn more about this. During college, you actually, you know, kind of pushing along that interest and study um, cellular and molecular biology at Brown University. So uh, can you describe your undergrad experience? Sure. So like I said, I went to Brown because I was interested in the molecular biology. Brown was, I think I had sort of like the non-standard Brown experience. For one, I actually dropped out for about a year and a half. This was in part due to early concerns about how I would actually be able to afford tuition. Uh, I dropped out. I did some software work at, at one of the robotics labs at MIT, not to mention testing out a few of my own company ideas for both biotech and other company ideas. Then when I made more and figured out a way to actually uh, make sure I could you know, pay for tuition, I ended up returning to finish my degree in uh, only two and a half years. So I did that so nobody would look at my resume and think, hang on, why was he here for more than four years? So still graduated on time. I just had to do it in a bit more of a rush. I would think I was about also about one semester away from also completing the requirements for a dual BS master's, but I didn't quite have enough Bitcoin to cover the additional degree. So I just, I just sort of ended there and decided to continue research elsewhere. Uh, Brown, I was definitely, it was, Brown was good. It was definitely intense. And I think because of the circumstances I mentioned, possibly a little more for me than it was for most bi biology concentrators there. Still, I really loved the graduate courses they had there. It was really just exciting to work with professors that had mentored Nobel Prize winners and made some of the really big discoveries in the aging space, like uh, you know, Mark, Mark Tater, for example. I picked Brown because just the sheer number of courses related to aging and regenerative medicine they offered, uh, from stem cell biology, like hands-on stem cell biology, to tissue engineering, to even actual biology of aging classes. I think sort of selection, not to mention the research labs I was able to work in, was uh, exciting. I loved working with fruit flies in my undergraduate research and learning about which different drugs could extend their lifespans and how to actually break mechanisms of actions for those drugs. I think uh, it was also really great to also work at a, it was also great going to a school where there is a big uh, computer science curriculum. Like, you know, there was definitely the people that were going off to like Google and, you know, Jane Street and all these other, you know, algorithmic trading companies, but also just getting to uh, take a bunch of computational biology classes was really great. Including, this included some classes that were on the topic of what later became known as data science, although it wasn't called that back then. It was just, you know, scientific computing, statistical computing, linear programming. I see. Thanks for sharing your experience. You know, up to Brown, you spent a lot of time in uh, biological engineering research, uh, working at the Cal Lab at MIT, 
as well as the background lab in Massachusetts General Hospital. So can you, you know, briefly share uh, some information about this career phase of yours? Sure. So at this phase, I was, you know, fresh out of college, I was still intensely in interested in biological aging. Uh, I had done research on general aging in undergrad and, you know, had done some, you know, computational work prior to that. But I was still interested in seeing a few more instances of specific disease um, aging uh, research. So areas like, you know, Alzheimer's disease, where there's heavy overlap with uh, diabetes or uh, stem cell research, where there's heavy overlap with cancer biology, getting to see more sort of unions of those uh, areas of disease research. So the Box Guy lab was sort of my main during that period. This was one of those neurology labs at Mass General. It was in Charlestown, sort of separate from the rest of the hospital. You like had to take a bus, uh, this sort of special like MGH bus to get all the way out there. It was part of this sort of larger group of labs under the uh, Hyman lab that was working on at various approaches to neurodegenerative disease. The group that I was primarily part of was working on Alzheimer's disease. Uh, they were looking at how aggregation of APP proteins could affect the activity of astroglia cells. These are the, some of the cells that actually support the activity of the neurons in the brain and sort of maintain the separation between the blood vessels and the neurons, which actually ends up decaying a lot in not just uh, Alzheimer's patients, but even just old people in general. So we looked at these cells in live mice that were given these gene therapies to make proteins light up uh, when stimulated with certain wavelengths of lasers. And then we used multi-photon microscopy to image many different types of these proteins in live mice. And when I say live mice, I literally mean we had once we injected the gene therapy virus into the brains, uh, we, had, we, did, we surgically replaced their craniums with a, a transparent cover slip so we could actually use the microscope on the brains, stimulate the brains with a laser, some seriously sci-fi, cyberpunk stuff right here. The research group itself was small, but this was like a 60-person 60, 60 lab. So I was also, to a certain degree, involved in helping about like eight other groups of experiments as well. And this ranged from experiments on PEPDART molecules that could allow uh, drugs to pass through the blood-brain barrier. This, there was um, helped out with the experiments for one group that was working on single-cell RNA analysis of actual human brain slices, brain slices from cadavers. Um, and there was another group that I helped out with uh, where there was experiments being run on certain compounds' abilities to slow the progression of the Alzheimer's plaques. There was the uh, Parkinson's group that was working on uh, a few other proteins. And... Yeah, just having my fingers in a lot just because of how the sheer size of the lab and just because I was also trying to just see with all these experimental techniques, where were the limits of their explorability, uh, exploratory potential in terms of how much information you could actually get out of them. Uh, and this was also combining with a bunch of you know data science and machine learning techniques for computer vision for actually denoising a lot of this data. Uh, the CARP lab uh, I had reached out to separately. Uh, this, was, this was after I sort of finished up a lot of the work I was doing my undergraduate lab. I had read a lot about Jeff Karp's at MIT's, his group's past research on stem cells, and I thought this was fascinating stuff. I saw that they, they were also part of this uh, SENS Research Foundation, the group that funds aging research. They were part of this uh, research program that was open that was open to like uh, recent graduates, and there was also a big selection of other labs throughout the country. Uh, however, with all the sort of uncertainty in the lab selection process, and even just the regular, you know, admission process, I just reached out to some of the grad students at Jeff Karp's lab directly and just had said, hey, I heard some more about these experiments you're doing. Do you want me to help out with you? And I just simply put together a proposal and was able to get in sort of without needing to rely on the whole Sentence Foundation process. Uh, and this, what the Karp lab was doing was working on ways of finding these sort of combinatorial stem cell vesicle production schemes that could actually take 
some of these stem cell vesicle you know, therapy concepts that have been developed in the lab and actually scale them up so that they could actually be used in therapies in hospitals. So this was, so getting really into the weeds of how all these different technologies worked, um, how stem cell vesicles were actually produced. The idea behind the vesicles is that these are almost like little tiny enclosed membranes of some of the material from the stem cells that are still stick around even after the actual stem cells are no longer, have already differentiated. And it seemed extremely promising for a, a drug delivery mechanism. So working on that, got out a one of my earlier uh, first author papers on on that project. And the whole experience was really fascinating. Uh, all this was also happening at the same time I was helping out with the local uh, biohacker space and getting uh, involved again in the Boston Cambridge area uh, synthetic biology scene. So that was sort of where I was in my early career, just trying to make sure I could officially explore all these different, these parallel areas of inquiry separately, just knowing knowing that this was a lot of information and I just needed to figure out what what was what was valuable and making sure making sure that I got all this experimentation done in the early phases. You know, after this sort of few years working on research, you um, decided to make a switch in your career in learning. When were you first exposed to you know the discipline, and you know why did you make this decision? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I had been exposed to machine learning. I wasn't completely new. I had been you know like my early earlier you know, work at MIT was doing some stuff with you know, doing some stuff with uh, computer vision and some basic pathfinding algorithms. I had done some computer vision stuff and some sort of higher level statistical uh, analysis, you know, using tools like random forests in my undergraduate research. So I had been exposed like on and off throughout my sort of academic career. But I, at the time, for most of that, I always saw it as just another tool in in pursuit of biological research. I wasn't, it wasn't necessarily one thing I was hyper-specializing in. I think uh, my involvement in it became a lot more involved after I left college. I think seeing all the different ways that this was being used for everything from drug discovery to just processing complex biological data, I th thought that this, in my opinion, uh, current biomedical research was in this sort of like third stage of, of causal network complexity, like in the early days when it was just, you know, demonstrating that, oh, it's the you know cholera that's causing this diarrhea um, and we need to cure it with this, you know, this intervention, these sort of diagrams between cause and effect, and maybe from there, from effect to cure, those were relatively simple. Later on, we once we got rid of a lot of the low-hanging fruit on that, we, we still had to contend with diseases like cancer or HIV, where the disease itself can actually change a lot, and sort of narrowing down a single causative or curative agent becomes a lot more uh, complex. Uh, and then with aging itself, you've got so many different comorbidities that even just defining aging becomes complicated. So the causal network becomes even more of a mess. And I sort of start, began to realize that a lot of the current approaches for running experiments in current biomedical research were, were not really up to par with this new need. I'd also seen in a lot of the you know synthetic biology groups that I've been part of just the potential for automation uh, when it comes to doing lab work. So I figured it's something that could really uh, easily interface with huge multiplex lab experiment machines would be intensely valuable. But in addition to this sort of seeing the massive potential of machine learning, there was also the fact that my a close mentor of mine at at Mass General ended up dying of cancer uh, unexpectedly. So that so there was some, this interest growing for a while, and then that was the final trigger that made me realize, oh, now my my sort of grad school plans, my career plans that I've been, had for so long are now probably no longer going to happen anymore because there goes my biggest advocate. 
And I think that just realizing that not only did I want to find a better way of addressing biomedical research, but also find something, find an actual new career path because th- this the door just closed on this one. I sort of realized that I need wanted to make sure I could get really good at machine learning and do so really fast, not just in the context of uh, biology. I think it was also especially that I had previous, this was also around the time where a company that I was working on for metabolite manufacturing, which had also used symbolic regression as part of its main you know, product development platform. I think that was also when I sort of realized I actually had a shot at learning machine learning a lot better than, than a lot of the other people that existed in the field. So that was sort of my trigger to pursue that. I see. Yeah, thanks for sharing your job experience and, and that anecdote on how you, uh, you know, decided to, to make this uh, decision. And, um, you know, my understanding is that you then became a freelance machine learning developer doing contract work for you know, a string of company, uh, such as uh, Mixing Key, Suspect Technologies, and uh, Encrypt, among others. So, you know, can you comment on your experience um, you know, freelancing as um, a machine learning engineer? Sure. So, freelancing as a machine learning engineer was definitely an interesting experience. I think in terms of opportunity, I was probably one of the earlier people doing freelancing and machine learning engineering. And this was still the stage where the sort of hype around it was definitely starting to get very high. I sort of initially put together a small portfolio just made of just basic machine learning example products like a a GAN that would generate faces or even a um, Bitcoin trading bot, some simple projects just to show have a portfolio and show to potential clients that I actually do know my stuff. I can actually make the stuff and put it into production. This was all stuff that I had learned as like a side thing during uh, when I was at, uh, during my day job. And I, it was interesting with, there were some clients that basically saw, you know, these new toolkits like TensorFlow is basically being magic. And we're like, Oh, we'll just plug our data into TensorFlow and have it it, uh, run. And how hard, how much harder could this be? But in every case, it would not only be these enormous expectations, but maybe even like the actual training data that they had was nowhere near um, appropriate for the given task. So, so there was a lot of clients that may have had really big expectations and part of the job always involved managing the expectations in terms of what machine learning really could or could not do. And the pressure was pretty high because if I did get a bad review from one client, then my freelancing career would have been over with any, any single one of these. I don't, I don't think many machining engineers, especially if they're going through platforms like Upwork, uh, last as long as I do. So, but it was extremely thrilling to just see so many different applications of machine learning engineering from private security to music analysis to um, secure communication. So just getting to see it applied to all these different applications from computer vision to recommender systems to natural language processing. I, it was, I, think, I think going with freelancing was much better for getting better at machine learning more so than like doing, trying to just climb up the Kaggle uh, rankings because with Kaggle, it's usually all or nothing, and it's usually only a very small number of people that can actually climb the leaderboards, especially since it's gotten more popular, and you probably compete with people who are really just gaming leaderboards. Mm-hmm. But also because Kaggle competitions really are separate from the messier processes of doing machine learning and data science, like actually making sure the data is processed, making sure the data is even appropriate, and also even deploying the, the final machine learning models to production. So in addition to making sure I was really good at all types of machine learning, I need to get good at deploying these models to you know, to websites, uh, deploying them to React Native you know, mobile apps, uh, deploying these models to AWS, or even deploying some models to Raspberry Pi devices. So 
I think getting it was more like a sort of sink or swim learning experience when it came to getting better at machine learning. Um, my understanding is like after kind of working on, on these variety of different projects, ranging from different domains, you next you had the opportunity to work with Google as a construct shop engineer, contributing to the TensorFlow probability library for probabilistic reasoning and statistical analysis in TensorFlow. So, you know, how did this opportunity come about? And um, you know, what's what skill set that you pick up from uh, working on uh, an open source software? Sure. So this admittedly came about from a recruiter. I have recruiter reached out to me once I had gotten enough of a reputation for doing freelance machine learning work. And they just said, hey, we got a high profile client. You know, they can pay well. They need some help with probabilistic programming, which you have experience with. And I said, okay, this sounds, this sounds pretty interesting. So I decided to go along. They went through a pretty thorough uh, technical sort of examination where it was not only coding ability, but also just how well do I know, you know, these various concepts in statistical programming. This was one of those areas where those just random classes I took in undergrad started to really, really pay off. I was also ridiculously lucky that I could actually re still remember the material from those classes. And sort of after I passed the technical examination, they said, oh, by the way, this client of ours is Google and they need help with this new add-on to the TensorFlow library. So yeah, I think that was that was how that whole opportunity got started. And obviously working with an open source library, especially one that's being as widely distributed as one of these add-ons on the TensorFlow that I was ended up uh, being involved in. I definitely learned a lot more about how to actually prepare code so that it's ready to be viewed by really large numbers of people, everything from formatting to sort of inline documentation to, you know, getting better at Python typing, all these different things which you never really think about when you're just quickly trying to deploy something to production for a client who's never going to see much of the actual internals of the code. But I also end up seeing just like how even for really large projects such as TensorFlow, there's always a few warts in terms of like certain parts of the code that may get buried in the doc documentation because they weren't quite ready yet, but they're just added to the, to the open source library in such a way that nobody is going to like accidentally stumble upon them. So all these concepts in terms of, um, you know, risk management when it comes to, you know, not quite stable parts of the APIs quite yet, or even parts that are only experimental, but also just be able to think more about not just making a code base that was for just one application, but making sure that, you know, for Hamiltonian Monte Carlo uh, samples, for example, which was being added on to TensorFlow probability at the time, you know, being able to make sure this, that this could be applied in cases ranging from, you know, simulating slot machines to um, dark matter detection to uh, financial analysis to mechanical crack prediction analysis, making sure that these tools were ready for all sorts of different uh, applications. Also, you know, just for the sake of simplicity, learning a lot about good API design. So I think that was it was extremely valuable learning experience. And also just, especially one where it was like, always oh, working with a team that was especially uh, useful to like not be the smartest person in the room. Although a lot of it, some parts of it happened remote, but being able to actually work with people that were super much more knowledgeable about statistical programming than I am, I think was an extremely valuable experience. Tangential to your contribution to TensorFlow probability, you actually also, you wrote a post that gave a quick introduction to uh, Bayesian neural networks. So for the audience who are not familiar with, you know, this branch of uh, neural networks, could you just mind giving an overview of it? Sure. So among one of the things that was being done with the TensorFlow probability library was adding on a bunch of examples of these probabilistic programming tools. 
uh, one of the major ones was the you know, probabilistic machine learning, including things like probabilistic neural networks, Bayesian convolutional networks. So the idea behind Bayesian neural networks is that many of the, you know, you have weights, you have biases, and you have these sort of uh, activation functions. The main difference between the neurons in an irregular neural network and a Bayesian neural network is that these parameters are represented by probability distributions and not by, not by single point values. And that the idea is that as you train the these networks, which is not through backpropagation, it's through there's a variety of other other methods you can use to train them. The idea behind them is that you make these, you would uh, basically take a bunch of samples from this entire network. So you take the sample that goes through all the distributions of the network, and then get an output that corresponds to you know probability probability distributions like for regression. This is the probability distributions that refer to the output function and also the error bounds. Or for classification, this is the probabilities for each class, which may not necessarily even add up to one one single full amount. So it's possible to even have a classification network that can say, oh, this data is out of distribution. I have no idea what this data is. It, I don't have enough confidence. And I think that was one of the main sort of selling points behind uh, Bayesian neural networks, because you definitely have cases such as you know, using neural networks for medical diagnosis, where because someone, a doctor may have like drawn around a like mole with like a marker, wouldn't have shown up in the training data, a skin cancer detection network may need to recognize that, oh, this marker is so unlike anything that was in the training data that I need to flag this as being super uncertain and get a human involved. Or even a simpler example, if you have a dog versus cat classifier, if you use a regular binary classifier built from a, reg- a typical neural network, you may have if you feed in a picture of a human, that network will have to make a choice between still either a dog or a cat, uh, even if the probabilities are still relatively low. But the idea behind a a Bayesian neural network is is that it's easier to sort of deal with this uncertainty. It's also much easier to deal with data that itself is is really noisy. Like in drug discovery, you have all these chemical databases where for some uh, compounds, the data itself, some of these uh, constants for some of the measurements may be maybe off by like five orders of magnitude in some databases and having a network that can take into account, you know, whether it be uncertainty in the outputs or even uncertainty on the inputs is an extremely useful uh, tool for a lot of applications. What it does is just having that, you know, having the parameters being the probability distributions rather than single values is, is the main, is the simplest, I guess, conceptual way of explaining this. I also go into more detail about how these work in the actual blog post that you mentioned. Uh, I included it in the show notes, so you know, anyone interested in digging a little bit deeper into Bayesian deep learning can take a look at that and uh, get some more information. And so you know, as we are talking about um, open source project, you also contribute to uh, OpenMind, which is an open source community whose goal is to make the world more privacy preserving by lowering the barrier to entry to private AI technologies. So yeah, can you uh, discuss this involvement? Sure, so I I got involved with OpenMind in sort of the earlier days of the project. So this was back in like 20, you know, 2017-ish. And what was going on was, you know, everyone sort of saw the potential of deep learning, but of course, part of the issue is that it requires a lot of data. And with a lot of applications, the the big question is, wait a minute, can this also, can access to this huge amounts of data also be a nightmare for privacy? Or could be could it be a you know potential area for abuse? So a few technologies had come about in the previous years about how to actually have some sort of privacy guarantees around, you know, either the data or if the model itself 
why to be protected and not stolen, how to protect the bottle itself. So the goal was to take some of these uh, techniques and try to put them under sort of one uh, library. In the early days, the goal was also even to have put together a distributed machine learning network that could actually create models that could learn from a bunch of uh, disparate data sets that only stayed on their own devices and were not integrated into one single one single database. So there was a bunch of different approaches to this. At the time, the main uh, two that were being focused on were was one, homomorphic encryption, which was this is a technique where you can convert data to a cipher, a sort of ciphertext and then run mathematical operations on that ciphertext. And then that, that output then could then be decoded back into actual data. And the idea was that if you could do these individual operations on, on these ciphertexts, can you uh, extend these operations to the point where you can assemble a neural network out of them? Now, this was one of the techniques that was being added on in the early days. But one of the issues is that many of the many of the underlying processes for this type of encryption for full, what was described as full homomorphic encryption were still very slow. We're talking, you know, the biggest milestones were getting down from a million times slower to uh, only a thousand times slower. So while those libraries were sort of put together in the early days, uh, a lot of what was being focused on was, was uh, federated machine learning. So the idea behind federated machine learning is that certain machine learning models such as decision trees or, or neural networks, some of the parameters can be, uh, the models can be sort of split among many different devices. The models can learn on a subset of the data on just that one device. And then the model itself can then be sent back to one database instead of aggregating all the data. And in this sense, you can actually, you know, use all these models to create a much more generalizable model. And by this way, you can actually update the model on data that's on a bunch of separate nodes, but actually copying and aggregating all that data into one master database. So one of the examples of, of where this is used is uh, Android phones. This is what Google uses to sort of update its Google Maps traffic, but basically just tracking the speed of and locations of the various uh, Android users' phones, but also using techniques similar to this to actually uh, preserve the privacy of the individual uh, Android users. So this technique you know, had been used by large companies, and the goal behind projects like OpenMind was to make these techniques a lot more usable by just anyone who wants to do this kind of machine learning, because it seems like a safety tool like this is something that really needs to be spread out a lot more. But I was a big contributor in the early days. I've made a lot of products using it, including using it for some of the uh, clients that I had as a machine learning freelancer. I think as time went on, a lot of the back end ended up changing, and certain parts of this stack, such as making the, the whole network, were put on the back burner, and some advances in homomorphic encryption were made so that the focus sort of renewed back on tools like that, not just federated machine learning. So I think some of the stuff that I contributed back in the early days may have been maybe deprecated by now. But I think, again, many of the same principles as that I sort of learned at, learned at Google still applied. Although with OpenMind, the goal eventually shifted more to uh, making sure this, this tools could not just be applied to things like the um, PyTorch library, but even to TensorFlow. So Make, making much more in all of the sort of API design tools that I uh, had learned, you know, working uh, on things like TensorFlow, you know, making sure that I could make these design principles much more generalizable also applied to OpenMind. I think it was also learning to look at, it was also an extremely um, user experience, being able to learning to look at machine learning from the perspective of information security, which definitely was a big uh, motivator behind a bunch of future projects. Yeah, and so right now we are sort of talking about your interest in privacy preserving ML. And, um, you know, you just mentioned that kind of sparked your interest in 
working on a couple of future projects. And so I believe that in uh, late of 2018, you start working on the Moloch, which uh, is described software that lets anyone easily run AI algorithms on sensitive data without it being personally identifiable. And you actually also uh, wrote a, a concise post called Private ML Explain in Five Levels of Complexity, sort of to, to evangelize this project. So, you know, would you mind explaining private ML to our audience as well as sort of the inspiration behind Moloch? Sure. So I went a little bit in detail about private machine learning earlier, but I guess in general, it's the sort of field of techniques that involve being able to make working machine learning models from, from data in a way that prevents the details of the data or the, or in some cases, even the machine learning model itself from being compromised. So whether this be differential privacy, which involves adding a bunch of noise to data to obscure it, or you know the homomorphic encryption or the federated machine learning, a lot of this is ways of getting the sort of like minimal information we can get from a actual data set, and then make, making the maximum uh, use of that. So in many ways, it's the way of combining machine learning with sort of distributed systems technologies, but also uh, to a certain degree um, uh, cryptography and also um, information theory. So I mentioned earlier examples of, you know, homomorphic encryption and federated machine learning. There's, there's also other examples such as whether it be differential privacy such in cases such as in Goodfellow's uh, paid system, which you have many different copies of the day, of data, which have a bunch of noise added to them. And you have the machine learning model that's learning from the, the sort of like replicated uh, noisy copies. In many ways, it's sort of being able to sort of uh, glean from all from like a shadow of the data more about the problem. It's also, it's not the most intuitive uh, subject and that's kind of why, despite these sort of new tools such as the Open Mind Library, which do make it a lot more accessible, it still seems like it's a, it's a subject that requires some new ways of thinking and some different types of safeguards of regular machine learning. And so this is where uh, Demolic uh, came about. This one was inspired, this was a project, the name um, was inspired by the Allen Ginsberg poem and I sort of realized shortly after naming the project that I need to, need, should have picked a better name at the, right at the beginning, but it was a bit late for that. So the idea behind Demolic was that some of these techniques like uh, federated learning, if you have multiple nodes on a network, if your data is split among many different nodes, it works, it can work pretty well. If you have data that's just on one node, federated learning is not gonna work. So the idea behind uh, uh, Demolic, especially the later versions, was this sort of combined textual visual interface where one could actually have the sort of um, recommendations and handholding on some of these newer techniques. Uh, the sort of tagline was be able to do private machine learning without a PhD. So the goal was also to have, you know, whether it be homomorphic encryption or federated machine learning, making sure that these sort of tools can actually be um, deployed and implemented with the best practices so that every so that whenever you sort of group is trying to implement these things from scratch, they're not going to like suddenly miss some critical prerequisite for implementing homomorphic encryption, like not storing uh, keys properly, and end up becoming the next Equifax. Uh, there was a lot of startups uh, at around that time that were working on private machine learning for medical data analysis, and I realized that okay, if all these people try to build up the stack from scratch, then any one of them could have a number of different sort of security problems to deal with. So. The whole goal behind that was having a system where you could at least have some sort of basic guarantees about these different startups' approaches to private machine learning, at least almost like a sanity check. Ultimately, uh, I was doing a lot of this while working, working at a 
different job, but it did end up getting a lot of attention from groups like Pioneer and Backend Capital. So it ended up still being an exciting, sort of worthwhile project. As we also talking about private ML, right? You uh, later wrote a piece called Private ML Marketplaces. You know, we kind of talked a little bit about some of these concepts earlier, but, uh, you know, was there any other project that you tried to come about with post? Yeah, so I guess the idea behind that post was comparing a lot of the approaches to private machine learning in terms of how much uh, exposure the da- uh, of the data is at risk and also how much exposure of the actual machine models are at risk. Because I, as I mentioned, some techniques like federated learning, they may involve you know, having this model being split, up, split among many different you know, nodes, but a machine learning model is often a company's you know, main asset, its main sort of uh, selling point to investors. So if that model can easily be stolen by one of these private machine learning techniques, and that sort of reduces the incentive for a lot of these different uh, companies to actually implement them. So the goal was to actually put together a framework for sort of measuring how much information about either the data or the model could be leaked, and then sort of comparing them. You know, obviously the baseline would be giving up the data or giving up the model, which which in that case is either default machine learning or in the case of giving up the model, that's just most academic researchers. If you want to go a little bit uh, more sophisticated than that, sort of reduce make it a little bit more equal, like having extra smart contracts based on the transfer of the models and the data. This is a little bit more uh, fair, but it also uh, requires a lot more, a lot more sort of specialized know-how for implementing this. Uh, this is one, go- one of the goals behind groups like uh, Numerai and Enigma. There's also the possibility of encrypting the model itself. This doesn't quite you know, solve the issue of data leakage, but it, it, does, it is one of the better approaches for uh, making sure that the model itself is not leaked. Again, like with the escrow smart contracts, the sort of barrier for entry for uh, implementing this was uh, pretty high, so it's not not exactly the most practical thing. And of course, there's also techniques such as uh, encrypting encrypting the data with homomorphic encryption, like what Microsoft Project Seal does, or like with federated learning. Uh, the goal was to propose a an area where you could actually judge, you could actually put a, like a price on data that's being used for a machine learning model based on how much unique information is being provided to the model's um, objective function based on it. So the idea was more like getting down to the idea that, okay, from an information perspective, you're not going to completely seal off the model or the data without rendering both obsolete. The bigger question is the model users want to retain proper control over the model and the data owners want to be properly compensated for the data. So how would a market uh, for such uh, data or even for such models how would that uh, end up work? So the proposal, so the idea was went into was this notion of making sort of trading of uh, data and models much more fair by implementing an actual model. And in the early days of Demolic, that's that's what the that's what the goal of the project actually was. Uh, it, it was actually exploring this idea a little bit more. But at the time, I sort of realized that there, with the whole data the data marketplace, there is sort of an issue of the whole cold start problem, where you know how do you sort of get the initial users of the marketplace, or how do you even get the initial data on the network? So yeah, I think it was useful as sort of an, an intellectual exercise in, ter- in the requirements behind uh, private machine learning. And it also inspired later work that I did with uh, 4AI regarding multi-model uh, dis- distributed systems and using that for sort of generalizable intelligence, but ultimately as an actual project that was that ended up being uh, put on the back burner. The Moloch later became one of the winners in the uh, Pioneer tournament. Uh, how was your experience with Pioneer? So Pioneer was a very fascinating experience. I think as one of the earlier uh, Pioneer winners, I think 
you know, there was definitely some sort of growing pains in terms of when they were getting the whole tournament set up. I think the pioneers actually get awarded a lot more now. And there's a lot more of a network of past pioneers to sort of rely on uh, for sort of advice and uh, support. And I think the sort of outside experts that pioneer can bring in is a lot more extensive now. Uh, but I'd say, you know, getting the chance to actually, you know, t- talk with people like Daniel Gross or, or uh, like Sean McGuire, Sequoia, or a bunch of other experts in their fields and get sort of feedback on how to actually advance products like Demolic even further uh, that was that was just pretty uh, great. I think also just the response to Demonic was also pretty unexpected. So, of course, as as I went through it, the whole goal of Demonic was a sort of fixed five-week tournament. You'd submit your product, and then whichever ones were at the top of the list would then be judged by a you know panel of experts. And I was really not expecting uh, Demonic as it was in its initial form to to get as far as it did. I, you know. I, I had these ideas regarding private machine learning. I submitted them to the competition and then it just sort of climbed up and up and up the leaderboard. And then uh, once the other sort of panelists agreed on it, which so again, panelists and judges, expert judges, including people such as, you know, Stephen Wolfram and, and, you know, Dylan Field of Figma, I just sort of realized, oh, maybe I should work on this for more than just one weekend. And not to mention getting that, you know, additional both prize money and also the additional AWS credits uh, and all those other benefits really helped a lot. So I personally think if anyone wants to actually try a pioneer, I think having that kind of accountability in terms of having the you know, number of people that are looking for like the weekly updates, I think that is incredibly useful for just being able to keep working on a project. So even if you don't win, it's, it's still, it was still a pretty uh, valuable experience. I believe that during this period, you start interviewing for full-time machine learning engineers your mega post score lesson from becoming a machine engineer in 12 months without a CS or math degree, it can sort of condense all the lessons of your journey, covering wide-ranging topics from, you know, technical skills like reading research paper and building portfolio to, uh, you know, uh, on, on even on the soft skill side, such as, you know, finding mentors and acquiring uh, productivity habits. Can you unpack this mega post and emphasize on some of the key takeaways that readers and listeners can obtain? Sure. So... I guess there's a, quite a few points I could I could go through. I guess one, uh, if you're trying to learn a co- topic like machine learning from scratch, try not to go it alone. Try to make some sort of plan for your learning and ideally try to find some sort of mentor. I think also making sure you can actually devote a lot of your time to machine learning and focus on you know, machine learning tasks for long periods of time is is a lot more valuable to learning as definitely under-acknowledged. I think you know when you look at all these people that are making are doing a lot of uh, research in space and are making these really fantastic discoveries, it's easy to forget that, no, this, is, this, is part, this isn't just, you know, innate brilliance. This is a result of sort of, you know, you know a thousand hours of uh, concentrated effort. I do think that when it comes to, you know, reading through research papers, it's definitely an easily learnable skill. And that if you just take the approach of, you know, skimming through the initial abstract and then just a general paper outline to get a sense for, you know, the higher level ideas and get a sense for whether it's worth reading and then, going really into deep. I think that does seem like a pretty useful strategy. When it comes to discussions around AI, there's a, it seems like there's a pretty small list of, you know, names and groups that tend to come up like 50% of the time. So, you know, pretty easily learn how to sound at least halfway knowledgeable in those discussions. And when it comes to actually getting work as a machine learning engineer, you know, you can do a lot in terms of like, you know, grades or, you know, competition results, but ultimately it comes down to coming up with an impressive portfolio and identifying the scenarios where machine learning is actually applicable and not just a technically interesting project to work on. I think when it comes to whether it be freelancing or even doing a 
full-time machine learning engineer position. You know, officially the job the job title may be something like machine learning engineer or uh, machine learning scientist scientist or research engineer. But in many cases, you're basically going to need to be Mary Poppins. A company is basically looking for someone who I can just sort of swoop in and solve all their problems regarding machine learning, possibly even problems outside of machine learning that they're uh, dealing with. So in many ways, that having that sort of mindset is is probably more important when it comes to actually getting work as a, as a machine engineer, either as a freelancer or full-time. I think there's a lot of different career trajectories one can go down. and But ultimately, I think a lot of the, you know, ha- the better habits for productivity and learning in general, I think these can be applied to really any subject in that just machine learning is, you know, given that it's coding, it's just, just the access to the materials you need to learn is just a little bit easier. It's more than an hour long to read posts. So that is a super simplified overview of that whole mega post. And so since uh, March of 2019, you uh, work as a machine engineer at Unified ID, which is a startup that is building a revolutionary identity platform based on implicit passwordless authentication. For those who are not familiar with the company, can you go over the core engineering and, and business problems that Unified ID is solving? Sure. So the goal with um, Unified ID is that in some cases, for those of you who are learning about machine learning in like a classroom environment, there may be the examples of how to identify, you know, individuals based on, you know, things like how they're moving or other sort of signals like that, like uh, how they're, what kind of info is being picked up from the, you know, accelerometer in their phone's pocket. And the goal behind that is being able to more easily uh, identify people with things that are much harder to fake than stuff, you know, say information that could be taken from like the Equifax hack. And in an academic setting, this has definitely been touted for a long time as like an almost solved problem, but obviously it's a little bit trickier in uh, in real life. So Unify ID was basically working on a real life version of that application where you can take a bunch of ambient signals, you know, whether it be the signal from a uh, wearable device that you often wear or uh, the way you move when you're walking to the door that's based on your unique height and, you know, uh, weight distribution. In m- many ways, you can think of they're basically Unified ID is basically doing the gate authentic- authenticator from Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. You know, this is a scene where Simon Pegg's character tries to wear a latex mask and you know get into the bad guys, the bad guys' lair, but ends up getting spotted and, ta- and tased by the guards because his walk cycle doesn't quite match up. Unified ID is basically able to do that, but without the video camera. Uh, as for the actual business cases, you know, this ultimately comes down to cases where all the authentication process itself uh, may take a long time. Like you've got, you know, things like call centers, which take huge volumes of calls. So you could, if you can even just reduce the authentication time, even just by a few seconds per individual caller, uh, and even even if it doesn't even work 100% of the time, this is still millions of dollars in savings for 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 the actual uh, company. So. I think as a place to sort of work on an, uh, an interesting problem and also not to mention learn a lot about the intersection of machine learning and signal processing, it was, you know, Unified IDs was, uh, was a pretty unique experience. Uh, at Unified ID, you also contribute uh, a bit in, into the uh, ML research side of the company. In particular, there was a paper called uh, Model Wit Tech with just noise inputs, a curious case of the Petulin attacker that you uh, one of the co-authors. And the paper explores the scenarios under which an attacker can steal the weights of a conventional neural networks whose architecture is already known. Uh, yeah, can you uh, describe this research in uh, final detail? Sure thing. 
So the idea behind the paper, this was just one of the uh, weird quirk about neural networks that we actually just kind of stumbled upon, but we decided to develop the idea further because it seemed like everyone just really needed to know about this. So the idea behind the paper is that you can you can steal a lot of info about machine learning model if you have access to the softmax layer of a model and you have a really good and tunable noise generator. Specifically, we already had the model architecture. We had input data that was the same shape as the training data, but this input data was really just made of noise from a Bernoulli distribution. So you know, it was you know the same size and shape as the MNIST data set, but it was just like I said, literally just noise generated from a probability distribution. But by feeding in the net, that, all that into the network and actually seeing how the softmax layer responds to that, we were actually able to create a um, network extractor function that could then uh, steal the weights from this other convolutional neural network and then get very close to the accuracy level of the new network just by seeing how the sort of softmax layer responded to that sort of input noise. We demonstrated this on, you know, stealing weights for MNIST uh, models, for KMNIST, uh, not MNIST, and also for uh, QMNIST trained models. This is the noisier version of MNIST uh, from Facebook research that also includes examples that were emitted from the original data set. For people who may he hear this, they may think, oh, well, it's just the weights you're stealing. You still need the architecture. That's, that's part of the, the issue. A lot of machine learning uh, engineering is done using transfer learning. So this may involve using a previous network architecture like Inception v3 and then repurposing it for a task uh, other than ImageNet. So rather than a huge space of model architectures that you actually need to search for, it may be, you know, you may only have to just do this, try this process uh, for less than 100 or even possibly under less than 20 architectures if this is just stuff being taken from the Keras library. And then when it comes to just finding the, finding the weights, you know, a lot of companies, their main defensibility is these, you know, large curated data sets they've generated. But this sort of demonstrated, at least in concept, that you can only use, you know, noise from a Bernoulli or Ising distribution and then use this to steal your sort of hard, your company's sort of hard, uh, hard-earned, you know, neural network weights. And... This the way this data can actually leak was just absolutely huge, uh, and this is also even since this paper came out, this has even been demonstrated with a lot of the more popular language models like you know BERT or any of the transformer-based models. So, and of course, when you have you know OpenAI releasing these models like GPT-3, you know, and having an API, uh, I guess the question also becomes: Okay, if someone has a general idea of how GPT-3 is structured, and they have some access to some sort of um, the GPT-3 based API uh, that's being used by any of these companies, how much of this, you know, really useful model can even just be, just be completely stolen. So yeah, there's having, uh, initiating the conversation on how these networks can be stolen just by a, by a property of these neural networks. Again, it, it, it mainly, if you can restrict access to the softmax layer, you can make this attack kind of attack harder, but there's so many different kinds of attacks on uh, neural networks, where it be, whether, it become, whether it's a matter of you know, fooling the network or even just stealing the network, or even even stealing the data that the network trained on. There's all these different attacks that most of the machine learning community seems to be generally uh, ignorant of. And they're probably gonna continue to be until some sort of major newsworthy hack hits the headlines. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for, for, for kind of shedding the light on in this particular scenario and some of the potential vulnerability of um, using trust learning in production. And so, you know, besides Unified ID, you have also been working part-time with Ford AI, which is a multidisciplinary team of scientists and engineers who enjoy doing research for fun. 
So uh, yeah, how can, how can listeners who are interested get involved? So with 4AI, this is a research group that was founded by people from big labs like Google Brain and NVIDIA. You know, Aiden Gomez, if you look up his name on Google, you'll see he was involved in a bunch of the, some of the more famous machining papers. He was even you know, co-author with Jeffrey Hinton. A lot of these sort of um, researchers got together and thought, hey, what if we had a space to sort of work on our own you know, ideas that may not necessarily be immediately applicable to a company's bottom line, just you know, whether it be ideas regarding you know, theoretical concepts about machining in general, or even other projects where they may need to find someone else who has uh, the requisite expertise. So in addition to sort of expertise, but they also have a bunch of uh, resources at their disposal, like a bunch of, you know, TPU clusters that can be used for some of these experiments. And between all these different things like language models and sort of new ways of growing networks to new types of GANs, there's been all sorts of interesting research that's come out of the space. So for actually getting involved, uh, there is a selection process. It typically starts with an interview that covers your background in machine learning, but also going into more detail about your uh, ideas for research projects and the kinds of areas that you're interested in. Uh, on top of that, there's also a take-home challenge. Given that research for 4AI involves creating a lot of algorithms uh, from scratch, you know, much newer algorithms that probably don't exist in any pre-built uh, Python libraries, uh, this would likely be a challenge involving coding up some kind of non-standard architecture or technique. So that in terms of how to get involved, uh, I think that's, that's sort of like the main uh, sort of process for getting involved. As for the actual process itself, usually when you go in, I think it's pretty useful to just show, just demonstrate your use for this by just helping out on an existing project. There's a huge diversity of projects that, that uh, the four AI members work on um, from distributed systems to biologically inspired uh, neural networks. So and then there's also quite a lot of room to actually uh, suggest your own products to work on. And not to mention, there's also the fact that a lot of these projects have been uh, presented at really large you know, AI conferences like uh, Neurops and ICML. At Father AI, uh, you know, you, you actually work on a couple of the research projects, such as um, Optimal Brain Damage and another one called Beat Tensor, uh, an intermodal intelligent measure. So can you explain some of the uh, you know, motivation and con contribution behind these projects? Optimal brain damage, that post was uh, one of the results of some of the research that was being done on ensemble pruning. It wasn't the main sort of goal of that research, but it just felt like an additional, like nice side effect that came about. So the idea behind neural network pruning is that you can act achieve similar accuracy with a neural network on many different types of neural networks, even after removing a lot of the parameters. This relates back to the whole lottery ticket hypothesis, which is this notion that most of the parameters within a neural network may be completely irrelevant. It's this only this one optimal sub-network that is the true, you know, winning lottery ticket. And that the way a neural network uh, converges on this is just basically playing the lottery many, many, many times. So if you do want to save on runtime or memory, you can basically prune away these less useful neurons and just get to this minimal sub-network. And you can do this by, you know, reduce a model to maybe even 10%, 5% of its original size and get, you know, minimal impact on performance. And in some cases, you can even boost certain qualities like adversarial robustness. So there's various you know, criteria for removing these, such as removing the weights that do not contribute as much to the overall output calculations, like removing the weight columns that have the lowest L2 norms first. A lot has been done in the space by big AI research labs at companies like Uber. And we, the project at 4AI was extending this to uh, focus on ensembles of neural networks, not just the individual networks. I mean, and, and in addition to some theoretical ideas, there was also a lot of 
work being done on the you know how to actually coordinate the do this kind of pruning on uh, ensembles that are being split up on, on many many different uh, computing devices like GPUs and uh, TPUs. However, during the research, I sort of realized that there weren't a lot of good ex- accessible explanations of neural network pruning out there. There were definitely examples of how to use the pruning Python libraries and like the high level uh, conceptual pieces about it, but there were not exa- there were very few examples of how to actually uh, implement this technique from scratch, which I think posts like that tend to be really helpful with you know teaching people the intuition behind machine learning. So that that was really optimal brain damage. It was more of like a quick demonstration of if you had to, you know, invent this technique from scratch, how would you go about doing it? And, you know, it ended up being a surprisingly popular piece. Uh, so ironically, that probably ended up being one of the more impactful results of that research than the actual final ensemble ensemble pruning stuff that I was doing. Uh, as for BitTensor, this was a bit more unconventional compared to the other machine learning projects that were going on. This was more looking at the idea of how, what you could do as alternative to leaderboards and baselines for machine learning research. So the idea is you may have, for tasks like computer vision or natural language processing, there's, some, there's usually some sort of metric and that neural networks need to optimize for, and then some sort of you know, leaderboard of different techniques that machine learning researchers also try to get their models higher up on the, on the board of. But the question regarding you know, general intelligence is like, how do you sort of produce generally intelligent networks if all you have is these baselines? And the idea behind it was that if, if you had a, you know, tools like GPT-2 had demonstrated the ability to, you know, learn how to do much more than just uh, handle language problems, like even to the point of learning basic arithmetic or even like learning how to play chess at like an amateur uh, level. But the idea was what would you use instead if you did want to optimize for generally sort of competent uh, machining systems. So the idea was like having some sort of large system where you could actually you know, basis performance on a lot of different met- metrics in the real world, and then sort of combine a lot of the a lot of other sub networks, maybe that may be distributed among many different machines on sort of one larger network. And but in order to do this, you would probably need a lot more a lot of computing power. You know, the kind of computing power that maybe only organizations like you know Google or Facebook may have. So we put together a proposal on how you would actually build these sort of selection processes for generally intelligent networks on sort of distributed systems. One of the other major contributions was how you would actually do this without each individual component of the network saying, oh, this is the most advanced sub-network, uh, rely on this one for basing the overall network's uh, decisions on. Uh, so because we, we basically ran into a problem of if this network is being made among many different smaller uh, groups, and if it is being incentivized by something like some sort of you know, market system for uh, really good uh, machine learning models, how do you eliminate the perverse incentive of each node on the network trying to just make itself look as uh, competent as possible? So we basically created a uh, system where the networks are basically incentivized to judge all, its, all their other neighbor networks as accurately as possible in terms of how uh, intelligent uh, they are. So it's not just about, so it's basically a way of evaluating the robustness and capabilities of these networks in a much more nebulous sense are basically relying on rankings that come from the other networks uh, in the system. In many ways, almost like getting humans to say, who among you is the most intelligent? And then just having everyone else nominate someone else, but also having a way that allows you to put an actual uh, numerical score on the confidence levels and disincentivize people just automatically putting their own confidence level at one uh, for just themselves. So that was, you know, 
obviously such a network would be fascinating if it were deployed at a big scale. So a lot of what that paper was exploring was with these sort of hypothetical network dynamics, what would the simulations look like? What would the steady versions of these look like? So that was a very interesting product to end up, you know, figure out a lot of the sort of game theory behind how to make these really big distributed networks that are made of, you know, many, many different subnetworks that are maybe split among devices that on uh, um, splitting machines that uh, not only separate machines, but maybe even separate organizations. Yeah. So that was, I was put on archive uh, a few months ago and it was definitely one of the more interesting, I'd say pieces of research that I've, that I've been a part of, at least conceptually speaking from a, in, in terms of just like how, how far outside the, you know, typical machine learning papers it is. Thanks for talking about that presentation that I do about that research. Um, so, so now, uh, as we also you know, in the, in, in the conversation about, you know, talking about doing ML research, um, you have written a couple of reflection blog posts on, um, you know, going to conferences such as ICML 2019 and, and NeuroStore 2019. So um, can you share some of those takeaways from, you know, being a participant at some of these uh, big events in the uh, um, academic community? Sure. So I've definitely been at uh, quite a few you know, conferences at this point. I think, I think definitely getting a sense for what's valuable and what's not these conferences. I think going to the, just the conferences for just the knowledge is not the right approach. I think it's definitely a lot more valuable as sort of a platform for uh, socializing more so than knowledge. I think, I do think there's a few issues in terms of like how some of these uh, products are reviewed and accepted. I think, for example, a lot of the top paper wards I think the selection process for choosing a top paper, you know, like making sure that you're not confusing the top one, the number one paper with like the number five paper, that the whole voting process does seem a little bit noisy, especially considering that you have a lot of researchers that are trying to work on the same subject and may not want other researchers to come out ahead. So I think some, for placing some of these awards with something like, you know, a top one or top 0.5 paper would be a lot more useful. I do think that there's certain topics that seem a lot more uh, emphasized in industry, more so than academia, and then and also vice versa. Like transfer learning does seem to be focused on a lot more in industry than it is in academia. And even though it may seem like academia focuses on transfer learning a lot, it's definitely a lot more valuable in industry. I also think that in certain areas, there's a lot more emphasis on you know techniques like in the security space, like how to actually break these machine learning systems rather than how to guard against them. So there's also the issue with that sort of massive imbalance. Uh, and of course, there's also the issue, I think with some, you know, with some projects being more like, oh, here's a problem. Here's our favorite analytical technique. Let's just apply, combine these two together. And there's some papers that definitely aren't much more insightful than that. But I still think that, you know, be able to have, you know, if you do sort of put together sort of a list of what your goals are for the conference, while also leaving aside some sort of designated exploratory time, I do think that it's still possible to get a lot out of these conferences. And also keeping in mind that most of the value is probably going to combine with the direct interactions with people more so than it is re reading the papers. I see. Yeah, thanks for sharing that uh, opinion. At the end of 2019, you, you wrote a four-part blog series on learning research interview that um, took us aspiring machine engineers, hiring managers, and senior machine engineers, as well as people who who's in the process of navigating ML research that uh, do not want to lose such of first principles. And yeah, so this, this four-part series was very detailed and you, you provide a list on some of the math concepts, some of the fundamental machine and deep learning terminologies, 
as well as sort of the process to deploy and scale ML models. So, you know, what was the motivation behind this blog series and how did it go about, you know, choosing some of those topics to write about? Over the years, I had a lot of very strange machining engineer interviews. You know, everyone knows that general purpose software engineering has been quasi standardized to the point where it's basically just cargo culting the, the Google interview process. Uh, by contrast, there's very few good examples of how to do machine learning interviews. Uh, a lot of interviews have surprisingly superficial qu uh, questions regarding fundamentals. I've definitely be, uh, been in places where the interviewer like didn't even go into the details about, ask me about any about details about like what I would do in certain machine um, engineering situations. And what I think, you know, on the one hand, it did, those kinds of questions do illustrate just how, how much those places do need machine learning talent. There's definitely much better ways of judging the potential uh, recruits that way. With all that in mind, you know, given how important the, you know, fundamentals are and how little they're being emphasized, I decided to put together a guide on the kinds of questions I would use if I were, um, you know, interviewing someone to be a machine learning engineer uh, or even a researcher. I think the, the researcher part, especially because, you know, if you are going to have someone focusing on research, then understanding of the, the mathematical and theoretical underpinnings of the machine learning project is, it's, it's not a preferred requirement, it's a mandatory uh, requirement. So I would figure hopefully this could at least help with that process. So initially it just started out as like the math, sec the math section, you know, various concepts I you know, learned from the math group workers it's in linear algebra, uh, control theory and stuff like that. Chip Huyen, another machine learning engineer provided, uh, was extremely helpful in providing a lot of different you know, examples of questions, not quite the answers to them, but in terms of like the kinds of questions that seemed like they would be useful, you know, she was an extremely valuable resource for that. So uh, I just went through the process of making sure these questions had satisfactory answers. Uh, later on, this extended from, you know, the math to the theoretical foundations of deep learning and non-deep learning, for example, support vector machines or general comp concepts about performance measurement. Uh, it's important to re recognize that machine learning is more than just deep neural networks. Later parts start to emphasize system design for machine learning. Again, tons of interviews that focus so much on leak code style algorithms, but now how to actually build and deploy a machine learning system, that seems like that's gonna be increasingly important. So I just put together a big uh, list of resources on that. This latter one basically became notes on popular deployment frameworks, as well as drawn out responses to some of the system design questions I had seen at companies like the Google, for example, as well as also other system design questions that have been encountered by friends who were interviewing at other companies like Facebook. So there was, there was briefly a quantum machine learning addition to that, but that one submitted to a few other friends who were doing a lot more on quantum machine learning so, they, so I can get some more feedback from them on what, what kinds of areas would be most useful for them. But yeah, that, that was kind of how that whole four-part machine learning research interview guide got started. And uh, I definitely put that onto the show notes. So you know, anyone who's uh, in the process of doing interviews, going over some of those concepts that you put together was, was really neat. So most recently, you, you wrote a fantastic post called Nitpicking Machining Technical Death that uh, breaks down relevant points of um, a, a famous paper from Google on hidden technical debt in the mouth. The post also provides 25 best practices on top of that. So how did you dissect the original paper from Google? And you know, what was thought of the acting process of constructing this post? Sure. So I think... You know, in partly jumping off the success of the system design interview guide, I was in a conversation with a few other machine learning engineers regarding best practices for technical debt machine learning. And this topic of this, you know, early paper in from Google from many years ago came up. And as I sort of looked back at the paper, I realized that a lot of the, it seemed like 
the paper seemed pretty superficial now. Like at the time, it was emphasizing an under-recognized uh, subject, but it definitely seemed like a lot had changed in the time between that paper had been written and the current surreality of machine learning as, a, as an industry. So I think I, I, my usual approach for papers is that I read the abstract, I skim through the uh, contents, and then I sort of like go start, you know, each part uh, line by line throughout the whole paper and then, you know, take detailed notes on that. So that's sort of three-part approach is what I do. Um, in some cases, if there's some math, I would usually leave that to the end as well, because some of the math in some of these papers seems more like it's added to make the paper look a lot more impressive uh, or to just, you know, meet, meet like a page requirement. But this one didn't quite have as much on the math side. Like I mentioned, this paper was a little bit different because it focused on the practical details. And I think when I sort of went in trying to read the paper, my first thought was like, okay, what specific actual uh, details could I get out of this? Which parts have like not actually stood the time as a time or where would I actually do stuff that was different? So making going through and making an itemized list of those parts of the paper and figure out where it would actually go different was my main process. It really just became a list of, and eventually just turned into a list of, okay, if I did encounter this sort of multi-language technical debt, how would I actually address that? What is not being talked about in the paper? I think, in, in fact, I'd say my main approach was really was for each uh, section just to ask myself, what is not being said right here that a, you know, modern person five years after this paper's original publication, what would I wa- uh, want to know? I think that was really just how this whole document got started. I also kind of realized that going line by line in a paper and just listing 25 best strategies for machine learning technical debt, which itself is not the most exciting subject in machine learning. I also realized that I need to keep some people's uh, attention. And of course, hence why all the, I just dug into my machine learning meme co- collection and just sprinkled those throughout. Yeah. And what's uh, essentially been uh, circling around sort of hacking news and, you know, various newsletter, uh, at least from what I follow. So I even, uh, someone even reached out to me. They offered to translate the post into Japanese, which, which was uh, pretty exciting. I've never actually, uh, that was one of the first times that it uh, happened to the, you know, someone offering to do pro, pro bono translation of one of my blog posts. So that was a, that was a pretty exciting development. That's when you know you've made it. Yeah, I think um, in terms of just impact, I, I do think it's, uh, given that that was one of the biggest, biggest posts on the topic and it was five years ago, it did seem like it was in desperate need of a tune-up, especially considering it was still getting cited. It was getting cited a lot. So I felt like someone needed to intervene and just say, hey, if you're going to be citing, citing this, make sure you keep in mind these these new disclaimers that really should be added. So, you know, uh, I want to round out the, uh, my, my question list with, uh, with a discussion on uh, a very well-thorough research list that you put together on some of the views that are currently under investigated. You wrote this list, you know, a while back that included some of the views in 10 different academic domains ranging from computer science and biology to economics and philosophy. Uh, how do you use in this list and what are some of the ones that you are personally most excited about? Sure. So I think there's definitely, you know, over the past two years, I've been involved with a lot of friend groups that spend a lot of time talking about advancements, advancement of science, advancement of society, and trying to figure out what are the best, you know, highest leverage areas to sort of devote your time to. I've been a part of the effective altruist community for a while. So thinking about what are the sort of underfunded charities, been part of a lot of uh, discussions I've been part of, and not to mention I'm you know you know friends with the writer of the Nitil blog, which tends to talk talk about a lot about uh, you know advancement of society and advancement of science. And I think it was kind of a conversation surrounding you know Peter Thiel's 
who's commonly asserted like, oh, society hasn't really advanced all that much since the 1970s or 80s. We're in a stagnation period. And I guess, you know, you could make a lot of a case that some of that may be overblown. You know, obviously things like, you know, we've got more than just the internet beyond the 70s. We've also got some pretty big advances in rocket travel and genetic engineering, not to mention the whole artificial intelligence boom. But I also began to think, like, looking back at some of these, you know, some of these earlier, you know, sci-fi stories, or even thinking about some of these more out there uh, research projects, what kind of projects are being sort of underfunded or underinvestigated just in terms of overall research interest? You know, after all, there is definitely areas like some parts of machine learning, such as GAN research, that I definitely thought were probably over-investigated. They're easy to, to draw hype around. They're easy to get, like, grants for. But in terms of what's going to have the most impact, it, de- it just definitely seemed like there was almost a, uh, there was almost like this sort of severe lack of imagination on that. So, you know, at one of the group houses I was at, there would always be these Sunday dinners where there would be, you know, experts from, you know, people working on some sort of research at like Stanford or one of these newer hard tech startups. And I began to sort of uh, probe them more on like what kinds of areas they thought were being underinvestigated, as well as also putting together some of my own, own ideas. And I think, you know, obviously since the idea came out, some of the underinvestigated areas would probably fall more in line with various types of vaccine research or applying chaotic systems to pandemic response. But I also thought that, yeah, I think this, I think I was pretty satisfied with it when this list came out. In terms of which ones I'm personally most excited about, I did sort of mention in the biology section that because I originally got my start in biological aging, a lot of my suggestions for the biology space were probably biased toward that, you know, whether it be the cryobiology, the immortal model uh, organisms, or even the biological radiation resistance, most of that generally stems from my previous background in, you know, how do you actually make these living systems that are much more stable when it comes to extremes of entropy or extremes of time? So I'd say I'm probably going to create a new version of this, create a 2.0 version that includes some new ideas. Some of them, some of the other ideas. I think the goal would be to have maybe some updates on which ones got more attention and maybe which ones, you know, which ones are are getting a lot more investment or which ones major advances were made in. But I also think there's probably some newer ones that could also bring up that weren't mentioned in this. So there's a little bit less overlap. So I'll probably, I'll probably make um, in the coming uh, two months, a version 2.0 of this list. Yeah, and no, definitely excited to see that that approved version that that you just talking about. And what what I personally enjoy about sort of looking through it is that you also sort of put the the research group or university that um particularly uh, are working on on those under investigative fields. So yeah, it's, it's really helpful to kind of know you know you know if anyone interested in can take a look at some of those subproof and kind of uh, did a little bit deeper digging into figure out how they can you know maybe contribute or, or just read in for for leisure interest. Um, okay, so so Matthew, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid fire questions, and you know you can just keep you know some of those answers for, for the listeners listening who are interested in hearing your thoughts. Question number one: uh, Can you name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you really admire? I'd say, oh, there's a lot I admire, but I think I'm, I'm definitely going to have to. I'd say Vijay S. Pandey of Folding at Home and PotentialNet. Again, maybe I'm biased towards biologists. I would also add on David Ha and um, Chip Buyen. I'd say you, you could probably find them pretty easily on Twitter, but I'd say I, there's, there's some really big, uh, big people that I admire in the machine learning space. Uh, second question, uh, can you name one book you would recommend 
for people to develop a better scientific mindset. I'm going to try to pick up what I think is under-recommended. I think the book, This Idea Must Die, is might be useful. I disagree with some of the examples that are given in the book, but I think the general point that major advancements come from rejecting essentialism and sort of recognizing the exceptions to certain categories, I think that sort of mindset is extremely useful in some cases and that it's not being acknowledged enough, even in, among some existing academic researchers. And then lastly, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine engineers on Twitter. I mean, arguably, I've already made this tweet, but I'll say it again just because I want it to be signal boosted. Don't apply deep learning to every situation just because it's your favorite analytic technique. Awesome. I think that's a, that's a great way to kind of wrap up our conversation. So, Matthew, I, I enjoy talking about research in biology and, you know, how do you make a transition into ML, uh, various thoughts and, and um, papers on private ML, working on, you know, TensorFlow and, and open, my open source software, as well as, um, you know, very great post on, you know, doing interviews and, uh, you know, working with um, ML technical depth. And I'm sure to include all the links um, into the show notes. So um, listeners can have a chance to go deeper and under kind of some of your thought process and, you know, reach out if they have any questions. So yeah, Matthew, I, I uh, appreciate, you know, spending the time in, in quarantine speaking with me and, um, you know, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Great talking with you as well. And thanks for having me on the show. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.